Well, I started out this morning. I had something totally different uh, prepared. And then I asked whoever had anything on their heart just to share before I shared. And the verse that Mike shared, he said that was on his heart this morning was Psalm 62, 5. Because it says there, my soul, wait you upon God for my expectation is from him. That was the verse that he um, shared this morning. And so God had me speak on that, had me change the everything that he had, not so much change it, but speak on something completely different. Now, when we see Psalm 62, verse 5, like in my King James Version, where it says, wait you, wait you upon the Lord, upon God. What, it's, what waiting here is, is, is saying is for us to be silent unto God. That's what it means to wait. In this context, right in this verse, it means to be silent. To be silent unto God. Now, if you look at the verse before that, in verse 4, this is what it says. They only consult to cast him down from his excellency. Now, we are known as, in the scriptures, and we can, we can point this uh, to us uh, here, and I'll read this particular psalm right here, um, how excellent. Our excellency is the fact that, that Christ is the treasure that's in us in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. We have an excelling treasure. That's Christ. He is above every single thing. And so we see that in this particular verse here where it's very, very beautiful in its meaning. And I like what it says there and how it correlates with this Psalm 62 and verse 5, which is really a beautiful portion. But again... That's what it says. But if we look at, again, the verse before that, it says, they only consult to cast them down from his excellency. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah. Selah is this, pause and calmly think of that. Pause and, ca and calmly think of that. Now, verse 4 where it says, they only consult to cast him down. The enemy with thoughts, with thoughts, with projections based upon lies, are constantly, constantly he is trying to cast us down. In other words, to get our view from being on Christ, to cast it down, instead of looking without and looking to him, and we talked about that in Hebrews 12, verse 2, look away from all that would distract unto Jesus, because he's the author and finisher of our faith what we depend upon. But here, when it's saying they consult only, they only consult to cast him down, they do so with lies, these thought projections from the enemy. And that's why when that happens, when those thoughts come in to bring us down from the excellency that, that Christ is in me and I am in him, what are we to do? What, what are we to do? We said this morning, even when we fail, when we fail as believers, what is it, when, even when we fail, what can we do about it? What can we do about it? Well, 
We're to be silent. Be silent. When we fail, be silent. God comes in, and then in 1 John 1, 9, what can we do? We can begin to confess our sin. What are we confessing? We confess that that, that, that sin or that failure or that lie that began to cast us down and began to make us think about ourselves, about everything else, and not Christ, we confess who we are. We, be, we begin to confess that, and when we do, we wait silently upon God because what, where is my expectation? My expectation is what? Is from him. And we said this morning that word expectation in the Hebrew is tikvah, T-I-Q-V-A-H. It's tikvah, my expectation. And it literally means a chord, a chord. But it's a, a chord here where it says, my soul wait, be silent upon God. And when we're silent and when we're resting, he begins to reveal who he is is our expectation. And he, in that way, becomes this chord. A chord here always speaks of an attachment. We mentioned this morning that a good verse that would go with this is Proverbs 3, 5, where it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Heart, there again, is mind. Lab, L-E-B. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind. Let your mind be filled with his thoughts. His thoughts, his word gives us a proper expectation, which is himself. We don't, be, we don't rely on anything else. So the word trust in Proverbs 3, verse 5, is, is the Hebrew word batak. It's B-A-T-A-C-H, and that speaks of an attachment. So the enemy comes in, and we said again this morning, that even our sin and our failure never touches, cannot touch our position in Christ, cannot touch my family relationship. But it can, if we give place to those lies through the flesh, it can interfere and does with our fellowship, with intimacy with Christ. I don't know about you folks. I know one thing. When I don't have intimacy, intimacy with Christ, what do we really have? How, how much lower is that from the reality about who we are in Christ? So again, God comes in, and when we, when we fail or we've given place to lies, we, we are to wait on him. And that's humility, to be silent unto him. It's just humility, just to be quiet. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I'm God. 1 Thessalonians 4 Verse 11, study to be quiet. Study to be quiet. Isaiah 30, verse 15, quietness and confidence will be your strength. Because when that happens, we begin to, God begins to reveal the truth about our expectation. And that is in Isaiah 32, verse 17. The work of righteousness is peace. The effect of righteousness is quietness, and assurance forever. So when we look at this, we've given place in, in, in our experience, our experiential intimacy with Christ, something's come in between that. What does God do? When we're silent and still, 
He begins to work in us as our expectation. And when he does that, he breaks the lie that we've become attached to. In every area that he breaks, something that has attached itself to us that's not of him, when he breaks it, he replaces himself with it. That's Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Then what's the result? You don't lean onto our own understanding. We don't. What is our own understanding outside of Christ? Who is our truth? What is it? What's it based on? Lies. It's based on lies. So again, my expectation in Psalm 62, verse 5, is from him. He's, it's a cord. It's an attachment. It's the thing that you and I long for. We may have an expectation, but it only comes from God. It only comes from him. The very thing that I long for and I desire, I need to be humble, silent, and wait for him. Do you remember what he told Sarah when she laughed at first? God told her something when by sight her circumstances and situations looked hopeless. She was 99 years old. Abraham was approximately 100 And God gave them the promise, Sarah, you will have a son. She laughed. Why did she laugh? Why did she doubt and mock God? Why did she do that? The reason is, it's because she was looking within herself as a source and seeing it was helpless and hopeless. But God said to her, when she heard it first, in Genesis 18, verse 12, when she heard it first, okay, she laughed within herself. And God said, Sarah, you will have a son. Is anything too hard for God? Notice, he never asks us, is anything too hard for us? What he says, is anything too hard for God? Is there any expectation that's too great? that he hasn't already fulfilled. And don't we need to wait for him? But he said, is anything too hard for God? No, but it will return unto you at God's set time. And in the meantime, you need to be silent and wait and not get occupied with these thoughts because the thing that she desired, Sarah and Abraham, the thing that they desired could only happen when God would bring them to the complete end of self-help and self-hope in them constantly. So the thing that I long for is that expectation that only he can meet. Again, that's from that word, tikvah, is from the Hebrew word, kava, uh, Q-A-V-A-H, kava. And here, what he's saying is, this is, a, this is what it is. It's from a primitive root, and it means to bind together. When I wait on him, when thoughts, I don't allow these thoughts, I, 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 what do I do? I cast them down in 2 Corinthians 10.5. They're lies. I cast them down. Casting down imaginations, these false reasonings based on lies. Cast down these imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself 
against the knowledge of God. Does the knowledge of God have to do with that expectation that only he can meet and furthermore has already met? So it means to bind together. Bind together. Okay, that's what it means. And to get our thoughts collected and bring us to a place in his presence to actually expect him to do what he said. Numbers 23 in verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should ever change his mind. Has he not said, and will he not do it? Has he not spoken, and will he not bring it to pass? Will he not do that? And so this word means to, to expect, to expect. This word stresses the straining of the mind in a certain direction with an expectant attitude, which is a forward look with absolute assurance. So expectation has to do with assurance. Can we trust God? What is it that we cannot trust him for? What is it that we can't trust him for? We can trust him for everything. The reason is, in Psalm 62, in verse 6, he only is my rock. Now, for us in Christ, he is only our foundation. He's our foundation. Remember what he said in Matthew 16, 18, in response to Peter, and what the Father had told Peter, something that Peter could never get from himself, had to come from God. What did he say? Your name is Peter, little small stone, Petros, and upon this rock, this massive, lo- massive rock, Christ himself, I will build my church. I will edify and build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is my rock and my constant deliverance, my salvation, and he is my defense. We said this this morning, and I, I, I actually said this. I used to think in my early days of preaching and teaching, it was, it was Satan and the world and the flesh that would come against us. Fact of the matter is, Satan's already defeated. He's completely defeated. He has no more power. Christ in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 dealt with it. He's dealt with his power. So how does he come against us? In, in, Hebrews, in, in Ephesians 6, 11, he comes against us with his wiles. Wiles there is where we get our English word method. In method, his method of doing, dealing with us, his methodia in the Greek and method in English, his method is of dealing and coming against us, who is he the father of in John 8, verse 44? He's the father of all lies. He has lies that are constantly coming against us to try to consult, to cast us down from our excellency in Christ. Get us thinking. Now, everything's about us is the details of life. Everything about us is what's going on in the earth when our view is heavenly. We're heavenly people. So he's our defense. Did, has God defeated Satan? Has he? In Romans 8, 37, we're more than conquerors. He's already defeated him based upon Colossians 2, 14 and 15. Everything that was against us that the enemy could bring up against us was on Christ's in terms of our sins and he nailed it to his cross and dealt with it and made a show 
it says there of in Colossians 2, 14 and 15, he made a show of Satan and all the demons and hell. He made a show of them openly. He dealt with them. So all they have to go by now is lies to cast us down and make everything about our life what's going on here. When we lose the fact that we're just passing through here. We're passing through. Like the Jews that were passing through. They were in the wilderness, but they were passing through the wilderness, which is a type of the world system. They were on their way to their promised land. We're on our way to our promised land, to Christ who is what? All the promises in 2 Corinthians 1.20 in him are yea and amen. We're on our way to be with him. We are in 1 Peter 2.11, strangers and pilgrims here. We're passing through and we're a tent people. Like the Jews as they were passing through in Numbers the 10th chapter in those first 10 verses, they were a tent people. They dwelt in tents. They didn't put foundations down on this earth. They knew they were passing through. So, has he dealt with the world system? He has. Christ, on the cross, has dealt with the world system. And you may say to me, how do you know that? Prove it. And I will say gladly. Galatians 6, verse 14 says, God forbid that I should glory, except in the cross of Jesus Christ, of whom the world is crucified unto me. <laughs> the whole world is crucified unto me, and so am I unto the world. We have been crucified. The world system's been crucified. Furthermore, in 1 John 2, verse 15, the one where it says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, in place of the love of the Father, it's not going to be in our experience. Because these things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, 1 John 2, 16, 17, but that world has been dealt with and it's on its way to end. <laughs> so as far as God's concerned, it's over. So what's left that he has to deal with in the Christian? What do we need the most offense from? The flesh that's in us in Romans 8, verse 9, that we're not of. He is dealt with, completely and utterly dealt with Satan. Dealt with the world system. What comes against us? Flesh. If you read Romans the 8th chapter and look at verses 4 through 8 and you look at those, you will see it's the flesh that gets that, that or all the problems that we have as a believer. And that's why we see that when he is my foundation, in other words, everything about my life, I build on him and him alone. And when that happens, he becomes my deliverance. He is my defense. My defense from what? Flesh. Because in Romans 7, 18, the flesh, okay, the flesh profits what? Is there any good in it? No. The Holy Spirit was telling Paul, Paul said, Romans 7, 18, I know in me that's in the flesh dwells no good thing. Jesus said in John 6, 63, it is the spirit that quickens and enlivens us. The flesh Prophets, nothing. The words that I speak unto you are spirit and life. And so he becomes our defense. And when he is a wall of defense, 
between Christ, us and Christ in the flesh. He, I, will not be moved. We said again this morning in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, in verses 25 to 29, when, when it says there that God says, I, I am not only going to shake heaven, but I will, I'm going to also shake the earth. Because he shakes things in us. He's going to shake things in his heavenly people, that's us, the church, just like he's going to shake things in his earthly people, millennial reign people, the Jews on the earth. So when it says he's going to shake heaven, it means he shakes things in us that can be shaken. And what can be shaken in us? It's lies. Those things that think that seem and that want to take us down from our excellency. Get our view, not heavenly, but earthly. Not, not, not without ourselves, but to look within, down within. Instead of being impressed with who we are in Christ, we get depressed into ourselves. We lose our taste for Christ. In Psalm 34 and verse 8, oh, taste and see that he's good. But when you start tasting things on the, on the earth and putting those in place of him, nothing tastes good. Nothing tastes good. And that's why Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure. We also talked about his love and his light this morning too. But here, I will not be moved. God's going to shake. He's shaking his church right now. Yes. Why? To remove the things in us that can be shaken so that the things that remain can't be shaken. That's what he's doing with us constantly. Constantly causing Christ, who is our excellency, because he's excellent. In John 3.30, he must increase, but I must what? Decrease. Decrease. Christians, Christians want the increase, but can't experience it without the decrease. There has to be a decrease that comes in. And then I'm not moved. Then verse 7, it says, in God is my deliverance. In God is my constant deliverance. And what? My glory. That's why it says, again, in Galatians 6 and verse 14, God forbid that I glory except in the cross of Jesus Christ, of whom the world, the whole world system and everything about it is crucified. So as much as you may want to go there and trying to find something outside of Christ, you're going to see just what he had to show Job. And you'll see that in the 28th chapter of Job. Even when the sea, the ocean, cries out, you're looking for peace. You're looking for an escape. You're looking for relaxation. And it's not in me. The very ocean he, he created cries out, it's not in me. It's not in me. The gold, the silver, all those details, all those things, it's, it's, not, it's not in any of those things. That's why, again, he says that, that in God is my deliverance and my glory. Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's our glory. Christ in us, the hope, the guarantee of a glorious future that Romans 8, verse 18 brings out, that Revelations chapter 3 and verse 5 brings out, 
where we have these robes, the righteousness of Christ that's glistening with a glory that's unbelievable. The glory that Christ obtained, which he spoke about, which he heard his father say in John 13, 31 and 32, I have glorified you and I'm going to glorify you. And that's why Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, he said it in John 17, verse 4, prior to the cross, but go in there for it to be dealt with and manifested. He said, I have glorified you on the earth. I've already finished it. Now he said in verse 5 of John 17, I'm looking for that glory that I had with you even from the beginning. Again, when that says that, in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, in verse 25, he's going to shake heaven. He's shaking believers' lives from things that have been attached to them that are not of him. He's shaking them. He's breaking them in Proverbs 3, 5 and replacing them with himself. God. No wonder it says that. In Psalm 73, 25, and 26. Who do we have on earth? I mean, who do we have on earth? But God. Truthfully, but God. We're gonna lose you, you could lose everything. You can't lose him. You can't be a loser because you have Christ in you. He's our portion. He's our portion in those Psalms. In Psalm 73, 25. Whom do I have on the earth but you? On and on it says, he's our portion. Psalm 73, 25 and 26. He's the rock, the foundation of my strength. Strength always speaks of grace. He gives us, we said this morning, portions. He sends grace, portions of it. In Psalm 68 and verse 28. Constantly, and he's my what? Refuge. My refuge is what? It's in God. Where is our refuge? Where should we flee to? Up the mountains? Down to the beach. And I don't mind the mountains, and I don't mind the beach either. But I don't flee to them for a refuge or a means of escape. It's Christ. We're in God. And as a result of that, I can trust in him what? When should I trust in him? At all times. What times? All times. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 15, all things are for our sakes, that the abundant grace might, through the thanksgiving of many, redound to go right back to his glory. All things are for our sakes. You know what those all things are? Read Romans chapter 8. Verse 31 to 39. Look at those 13 to 14 things that could come against us. And does it even matter if they come against us since God's for us, since he's with us? And just think about that. Trust in him at all times. Why? Because in 2 Corinthians 5.18, all things are of God for us in Christ. All things are of God. And that's why in Romans 8, verse 28, all things work together for the good to them that are the called and those that are called according to what? Whose purpose? 
his purpose. The flesh's purpose in Genesis 6, 5, Genesis 8, 21, no. No. His purpose. His purpose. And so, trust in him at all times, you people. And you know what when we do? When we truly trust him, guess who we pour out our heart to? Someone else? Should I pour it out? Or do I pour out my heart before him? I do it before him. Because what? God is a what? He's a refuge. And you know what that means? We flee to him. Trouble comes instantly, we flee, we run to him. And when we do, what do we see? God is a refuge, what? For us. Is God ever against us? Does God have a single thing against us? Is there one thing that he holds against us? Not one single thing. Right? Now, surely, men of low degree are a vanity. They're like a vapor. That's what the enemy wants us to do with his lies, a Christian. See? Look at your circumstances. Look at your situations. Look at your mundane, everyday life. Why? What are we doing? Why are we here? Why are we doing this day after day, week after week, month after month? Jeez. Look within. Then I began to see from a low degree, because they got me to go down, they're counseling me to look down. What? Surely men are of a low degree of vanity. Nothing, it's, everything seems empty. What's the point? <laughs> men of high degree are a lie. Two things that we do. The enemy comes in with his lies. To make us above everything. Men, listen, look at what it says. Men of a high degree. When we make more of ourselves than God, when we make more of ourselves than the body, when we make more of ourselves than the word in the local assembly, we're making more of ourselves. Men of a high degree. But to do that is based upon what? lie and just as bad as it is to, to, to be low there's either of these things when we think too highly of ourselves or too lowly of ourselves is that humility no because what is humility it's not thinking too highly of ourselves not thinking too lowly of ourselves it is not thinking of ourselves at all now to, to lay those in a balance you know, one day I'm up, next day I'm down. Next day I'm up, another day I'm down. Up and down, up and down. You know, that's called the seesaw Christian life. I don't know who's on the other side. Maybe the other one you're relying on that's not Christ. You ever try and do a seesaw by yourself? Takes two to have a this little fleshly thing going on, doesn't it? <laughs> so, but to be laid in a balance, they are altogether lighter than nothing, than a vapor. Now, my only other option to trusting him at all times is verse 10, to trust not in oppression. I become oppressed. I, everything is in. Everything's about me. I, I view things based upon the lie in my flesh, and nothing seems right. 
and nothing seems good. Nothing does. But you know, God has spoken once. Twice have I heard it. We need to hear it a lot more than twice, right? And he's going to reveal it. But God's spoken once. Twice have I heard this. The power belongs to God. But once that he's spoken, is it the word, his son? That's right. Christ, our power. Power. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let the weak say, I am strong in Joel 3.10, 2 Corinthians 12.9. When I'm weak, when I'm weak and I'm silent and waiting, in comes the expectation. In it comes, and then what? Let the weak say now, I am <clears throat> weak, weak is not sin. Weakness is not sin. But when Christ is not that power that fills it experientially, the only thing we can operate in is the flesh which leads to sin. We said that this morning. That's Hebrews 12, verse 1. Lay aside every weight. Every weight. Are you trying to carry something? Is it based upon a lie? He's trying to carry it. Lay aside every weight. Because if we don't, it ends, in, ends up in a sin. And that sin is the thing that trips us up in the race. We no longer want to run. We settle down. We no longer want to go forward. We want to settle down. It's like the Israelites when God delivered them out of Egypt, out of the bondage of Egypt for over 400 years. Imagine the things that they had gone through. They got in the wilderness, and when, they, when things happened, they just wanted to settle down or go back to Egypt. They tried to settle down where they were, and then they wanted to go back to Egypt instead of going forward. You'll see that in Exodus 14. 13, Verse 14 and 15, that was the answer that God gave Moses to go forward. Not settle down and not go back. Well, God has spoken once. It's all he needed to say at once. How many times does God have to tell us things? He might have to tell us many things, but it's the same thing once. That this power belongs unto God, and we need that power, that strength. We get it by silently waiting and receiving it. Their power belongs unto him. Also unto you, in verse 12, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to every man according to his work. Mercy. What a, what a word that is as we begin to close this up, because I seem to be losing my voice a little bit. So, but when we look at that and when we see those, that truth there, when we see it here, when we talk about mercy, we see that in Psalm 115 and verse 1. Remember the mercy that, there, that is there in, in um, Psalm 62 and verse 12. But here in Psalm 115, 
verse 1, it says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto your name, your name, your nature, the nature that Christ is, your, your nature, and everything that you've accomplished, every single thing that you've accomplished, your name give glory for your mercy and for your truth's sake. That word mercy in, in the Hebrew is chesed. It's spelled C-H-E-S-E-D, chesed. That's how it's pronounced. And this is what it means. The loyalty and faithfulness of his steadfast, immovable love. I said this morning, mercy is that that does away with the misery of sin. Grace is that that does away with the guilt of sin. And it's all based upon his love. It's God's unfailing and steadfast love that goes far beyond your ability and my ability. It's an unfailing love. And it doesn't fail. And then finally, that's what we have in Hebrews, the fourth chapter. Just read those verses and then we'll stop. In Hebrews, the fourth chapter. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14 says, seeing then, seeing then. That's what we need to wait. We need to wait for him to show us things. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our, and when you see in certain translations where it says profession, the proper word is confession. It's confession. Then it even goes into when we confess our sins in 1 John 1, 9. We're confessing Christ who dealt with them. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast, keep, and guard our confession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tested, not tempted, because remember, we said this morning in James 1, verse 13, God tempts no man with evil because he can't be tempted. Neither he tempts any man. But it was all points tested like as we, yet without sin, meaning he never had a sin nature. He had a human nature, but he, had a, he, had, he didn't have a sin nature. He had a human nature. Hebrews 4, and verse 16 says, Let us therefore come what? Boldly unto the throne of grace. Because what does grace do? It does away with a lie of experiential guilt. That we may obtain mercy. And what does mercy do? It does away with the misery of what? Sin. Right? It's the misery that sin brings. Grace does away with the guilt that, that sin that brings. And mercy does away with the misery of it. And find grace to help right in the nick of time. Right in the nick of time. Because as Jesus is, right now, we're to come boldly to the throne of grace. Because as he is, so are we in this present evil world. Isn't that correct? So we'll just close with 1 John 4. 
And we're going to look at 17 and 18. 1 John 4, 17 and 18. I think I can get those last verses out. 1 John 4, 17, it says, Herein is our love made perfect. Herein is that individual's love that's been completed. God's completed everything in his love for us individually based upon his son. That we may have what? Boldness in the day of judgment. Why? Because there isn't any for us. Christ has dealt with it. We're to have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, how's he doing? Where is he seated? Is he finished? Is he seated above everything? Is that what we have in our position in Christ? Because as he is, so are we right now in this world. And there's no fear in love. Why? Because love that's perfected everything about us already is that that casts out fear. Because fear has torment. He that fears is not made, it's not being made complete in love in his experience like we are in our position. So, my soul, what, what, what should we do when we have requests and prayers and things we're waiting on? Do we even know what our expectation is? Do we even know what a proper desire is until our will is submitted to him in obedience, in quietness and confidence and waiting for him, right? We have a beautiful Savior. He's got everything about us taken care of. And we're just passing through here. We're a tent people. And like they heard it, they heard that silver trumpet. That silver trumpet was made of two pieces and put together. And two is a beautiful thing. It can mean something bad or good. Separated to bad or separated to good. We've been separated, sanctified, set apart for Christ. They would hear the silver trumpet, which would always hear redemption. And that trumpet was always telling them when to pick up the tent and go. But they had to hear it first. But if they didn't, what were they to do? They were to be still and be occupied with him in their tents, waiting for the next command that would come from love, which would speak of an unbelievable redemption that's been accomplished by Christ on our behalf. So, Father, we thank you uh, this night for your word. And uh, just help us, help us to dwell on these where you can take in these truths and make them real in our experience. In Jesus' name, amen.